3: Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Radio Westeros, Episode 7, Stannis Baratheon, A Just Man. Hi and welcome! Thanks for tuning in to Radio Westeros today. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston, and my co-host, as always, is Yoke Boy from England.
2: Yeah, hi, and today we will be talking about the one and only Stannis Baratheon, a character who has gained a great following of devoted fans. A man of justice with a military mind, we're very excited to be covering such an intriguing character today.
3: Okay, so let's talk briefly about what we have lined up. Joining us today is special guest Jeff Hartline, who some of you might know as moderator Brendan Beefish at Reddit. Jeff also has a great blog called Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, where military issues are never too far away.
2: That's right. We like Jeff's blog. And with a military background, we thought he was just the right person to bring in for our discussions on Stannis. So we'll have a quick overview about Stannis before launching into a discussion about his personality, and that will be with Jeff.
3: Then we'll have a look at Davos and Mel as the two opposed voices perched on Stannis' shoulders, an assessment of him as a military commander, again with Jeff, and also a look at the upcoming Battle of Ice as we consider what's in store for Stannis, who's currently holed up in that icy crofter's village.
2: And then to finish, after all of that serious Stannis chat, we'll have a talk about Stannis' humour as we find him completely hilarious we also have readings of the goshawk speech and one of the best moments in the books so far we'll just say Stannis, Stannis, Stannis and leave it at that
3: and music from the fandom, pseudo-adverts we are Radio Westeros and here's our look at Stannis Baratheon which we hope all you listeners enjoy
0: Uh, Hi, this is Jeff Hardline, otherwise known as Brendan B. Fish. I'll be joining Radio Westeros a little bit later to talk about Stannis, about his military exploits, about his bending and breaking, and I'll talk a little bit about
2: my blog as well. So stick around. So we're going to start today's episode by having a brief overview of Stannis. He's described as stern, humorless, and grim, more or less the opposite of his brother, Robert. We're first introduced to him briefly in Brand's POV when he hears Jamie Lannis to say, Robert can barely stomach his brothers. Not that I blame him. Stannis would be enough to give anyone indigestion.
3: <laughs> yeah, and later, from Ned's point of view, we get this description. Stannis was a different sort of man, a bare year younger than the king, yet utterly unlike him, stern, humourless, unforgiving, grim in his sense of duty.
2: And Littlefinger continues much later, painting a very dark picture of the man. Stannis is no friend of yours, nor of mine. Even his brothers can scarcely stomach him. The man is iron, hard and unyielding. Robert found it in him to pardon men who served King Ares, so long as they did him fealty. Stannis is less forgiving he will not have forgotten the siege of Storm's End, and the lords Tyrell and Redwin dare not. Every man who fought beneath the dragon banner, or rose with Balon Greyjoy, will have good cause to fear. Seat Stannis on the Iron Throne, and I promise you the realm will bleed.
3: So early on we get a picture of Stannis as a very hard man, and unyielding, whose fun-loving brothers can barely stand him. We're going to be looking at exactly that aspect of his personality shortly with today's guest, but first we'd like to suggest that Stannis Baratheon is actually full of pathos.
2: Yeah, we learned from Maester Cresson that, and quote, hard was the words men used when they spoke of Stannis, and hard he was. Cresson also recalls that Stannis was always a solemn child, and Lord Stefan's final letter about Patchface, which says, Perhaps in time, he will even teach Stannis how to laugh. Certainly confirms this. But we think that solemnity can indicate sensitivity rather than the opposite.
3: Right. And this solemn child watched his parents die and was then raised by the castellan and meister of his castle. He apparently craved his often absent elder brother's attention and approval. But as it turned out, he was overlooked continually and failed to gain recognition for his deeds.
2: Yeah, Robert doesn't seem to have related well to Stannis. We've already seen Jamie and Littlefinger assert that Robert couldn't stomach his brother. And when Ned suggests Stannis be named Warden of the East in Jon Arryn's place, Robert frowned and said nothing. He looked uncomfortable.
3: Yeah, of course we learn that Robert has already appointed Jamie, But why overlook Stannis in the first place? Stannis served him well as a young man barely come of age at Storm's End and at Dragonstone. Later, in Greyjoy's Rebellion, he apparently commanded the naval forces brilliantly. He's been a loyal counselor and master of ships for 15 years, and rather than confirming him as the Lord of Storm's End, as he might have done after the Rebellion, Robert gave Stannis Dragonstone while Renly got Storm's End with its presumably vast estates and retainers.
2: And this decision is, in quotes, an old grievance deeply felt, as we learn from Crescent. In fact, Stannis makes it clear what he thinks of Dragonstone in the Crescent POV. He says, I never asked for Dragonstone, I never wanted it. So Stannis did his duty to Robert, and all he got was a lousy island.
3: <laughs> right. This clearly offended Stannis' sense of fairness and justice and caused no end of bitterness then there was the offence of Robert's actions on his wedding night, disgracing his wife's kinswoman and sullying Stannis's marriage bed, which Solis later bizarrely blames for Stannis having no male heirs himself.
2: Yes, but we wonder if perhaps Robert awarding Dragonstone to Stannis was meant to be an honour. It had long been the seat of the Targaryen hares, and it's likely that in the years before Joffrey was born, Robert considered Stannis his heir. This would be typical of Robert's rather careless manner, we think, toward an honor to his brother, with no fanfare, no explanation. And it actually says that Robert needed Stannis to hold Dragonstone because a man needed to rule it, and Renly was just too young. But also, this move might have conveniently kept Stannis at a distance from Robert. And it often seems like the only person Robert really related well to is Ned Stark.
3: Yeah, and we learn very plainly in the Crescent prologue that Stannis resents his brother's closeness with Ned. From Ned getting credit for lifting the siege of Storm's End to being awarded the Handship, Stannis seems jealous that Robert loved Ned like a brother, and has no interest in avenging his murder or allying with his son, whom he views as another false king.
2: So Stannis had been investigating Robert's Bastards with John Arryn. And after Lord Arryn's untimely death, which Stannis lays at the door, unquote, of the Lannister Woman, Stannis retreated to Dragonstone. It's not clear how Stannis knew to begin investigating Robert's Bastards, though perhaps proximity to Cersei and Jaime might have given him some clues.
3: Right. And at any rate, he did begin to investigate with John Arryn, Visiting Toboma and Chitia's brothel, it can be certain that Stannis would know about Edric Storm's appearance while Lord Aaron would be familiar with Maya Stone's. Whatever the reason, when the books open, Stannis is brooding on Dragonstone, the unappreciated younger brother sullen and resentful, full of suspicions and jealousies.
2: And of course, once Robert died, Stannis views himself as the rightful king. His resentment only grows when the Lannisters proclaim Joffrey king and place Stannis in a position of open rebellion to gain what he views as rightfully his. In a sense, he's once again been denied his due as Robert's brother.
3: Right. As Meister Cresson thinks, sometimes when the world grew very still and silent of a night, he fancied he could hear Lord Stannis grinding his teeth half a castle away. (laughs) Obviously, Stannis' sense of fairness and justice is outraged, and he now has one more grievance to add to the list of wrongs he's suffered from his brother Robert. Stannis will now stop at nothing to claim his place as the one true king of Westeros. It's all or nothing for him here on.
2: Yes, it does seem to be all or nothing from him now. But the Crescent POV, as brief as it is, also gives us valuable glimpses into the deeper character of the man that continue to be expanded on as his arc progresses. And with that in mind, we're going to begin with a consideration of Stannis' iron will with a special guest. Robert was true steel. Stannis is pure iron, black and hard and strong, but brittle the way iron gets. He will break before he bends.
3: Okay, now I'm joined by our very special guest, Jeff Hartline, also known as Brendan Beefish. Jeff is a contributor at Reddit where his input was appreciated so much he was asked to be a moderator. He also owns a popular A Song of Ice and Fire blog called Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, which he'll be talking about with Yoke Boy later. And on top of all this, Jeff has been asked to contribute an essay on Stannis to the Tower of the Hand, and it's this work that forms the basis of the notes we're using today as we discuss whether the Iron Man, Stannis Baratheon, does indeed bend. So Jeff, hello, and thanks for joining us at Radio Westeros.
0: Hey, Lady Gwen, it's a pleasure to be here.
3: Okay, so let's talk through the notes that form part of your Tower of the Hand essay, in which you argue that Stannis is perhaps more flexible in his policies than he's given credit for, both in story and in the fandom. Sure, no problem. So, throughout the narrative, Stannis Baratheon is spoken of as being an excellent commander, but also as being brittle and inflexible. Donald Noy's quote to Jon Snow early in A Clash of Kings sets the stage.
0: Yeah, Donald Noy says, Robert was the true steel, Stannis is pure iron, and hard and strong, yes, but brittle in the way that iron gets. He'll break before he bends. And Renly, that one, he's copper, bright and shiny, pretty to look at, but not worth all that much at the end of the day.
3: And, of course, noise sentiment is shared by others, like Littlefinger, who tells Ned, the man is iron, hard and unyielding.
0: Right, and Varys uses a similar metaphor about Stannis when he says, they're they're quite a pair, Stannis and Renly, the iron gauntlet and the silk glove. Even Catelyn Stark thinks this one will never bend.
3: Yeah, and Davos says, my fingers will grow back before that man bends to sense.
0: So Noy's analogy of Stannis' Baratheon as iron has gained a lot of traction among fans, even some of Stannis' fair share of fan admirers. Many readers admire his tactical and strategic acumen and view his actions in saving the Night's Watch from wildling invasion favorably but many also hold to the view that the would-be king is also inflexible and stubborn to his cause's detriment.
3: But Jeff, you think that Donald Noy, Catelyn Stark, and the fans who view Stannis as brittle, inflexible iron have an incomplete view of the man, right?
0: Definitely. Well, I think that Stannis is indeed hard and strong, the brittle and the breaking aspect of the metaphor is lacking. I think that Stannis is much more flexible than in-universe characters and fans give him credit for. And I think his flexibility goes a lot farther back into the timeline than commonly thought.
3: Okay, so let's look at this assertion, starting with the metaphor of Proudwing.
0: Well, Davos's first chapter in A Clash of Kings opens with Stannis burning the statues of the Faith of the Seven. The chapter ends with Stannis explaining his rationale forsaking the Faith in the form of a story from his youth.
3: Right. Stannis' abandonment of the Faith of the Seven in favor of Valor sticks out on a reread. In fact, we'll be addressing this scene in our first reading and the segment which follows. It really does show a religious pragmatism that challenges the image of Stannis as inflexible and never wavering in his convictions or opinions.
0: Yeah, I, I think there is something in what Stannis says that shows a flexibility and willingness to abandon weak or lost causes in favor of those that might bring profit or seem evidentially true. It's really interesting because the story really doesn't seem to fit with the picture that a lot of the characters and fans have of the man. Where Stannis isn't yielding as many hold, he likely wouldn't have abandoned the faith of the seven And just kind of as a rhetorical question, would he have later gone to abandon his atheism as well?
3: Yeah, good point. It seems that Stannis' view of religion gives some perspective on the fact that he's willing to change his mind where he's convinced. While Stannis doesn't really show a partisanship over his faith in the Red God, his conversion based on evidence shows a frame of mind that isn't iron-willed. And more importantly, the metaphor shows that Stannis needed to be convinced before changing his mind on religion.
0: Right. And as we'll see, Stannis wasn't really a fanatic. His faith in R'hllor is sometimes portrayed as self-serving given the fact that Melisandre believes him to be a Zora High reborn. But as most of Westeros follows the faith of the Seven, it doesn't really gain him popular support from lords or small folk. And if he's not gaining followers and isn't a R'hllor fanatic, there must be some other pragmatic reasoning behind his conversion to the Red God.
3: Well, there must be. Dare we say it's Melisandre promising to use her powers to deliver him his throne? Well, so now let's take a look at Stannis' counselors. Early in the series, Davos Seaworth and Melisandre of are presented as Stannis' chief counselors. And as we'll discuss shortly in another segment, both frequently presented opposing counsel for Stannis. Later, Jon Snow serves a vital role in counseling Stannis away from foolhardy military and diplomatic actions. Now let's take a look at one underexamined example from Davos.
0: Okay. So, in A Storm of Swords, Stannis was in a weak political position. After being defeated by the Lannisters and Tyrells at King's Landing, Stannis was down to a few thousand soldiers and a vastly depleted treasury. More than that, he was deprived of good counsel. Davos was missing, in action after the Battle of the Blackwater, and presumed dead. In place of Davos, Stannis had Melisandre and Sir Axel Florent as advisors. Melisandre advocated religious, often magical solutions to problems, while Axel Florent assumed Davos's place as right hand advisor to Stannis. But Axel Florent was no Dava Seaworth when it came to providing good ethical counsel to Stannis.
3: Right, and it was Sir Axel who counseled Stannis to invade and loot Claw Isle, a small island in the Narrow Sea whose lord had bent the knee to Joffrey after the defeat on the Blackwater.
0: Yeah, if the island and castle were sacked, Stannis would have had the coin necessary to continue his war against the Lannisters. Stannis seemed ready to heed Axel's morally dark counsel. To Stannis, it was a pragmatic plan, mostly on account of how easily it could be accomplished. However, Davos returned his Dragonstone and suggested otherwise.
3: And here's Davos's quote. I make it folly, aye, and cowardice. You say we ought to show the realm we are not done. Strike a blow, make war, aye, but on what enemy? You'll find no Lannisters on Claw Isle.
0: So Stannis actually relented from this plan, even after he said it was feasible. He even went so far as to call it, quote-unquote, evil when he and Davos spoke alone after the meeting with Sir Axel. And in response for Davos' speaking truth to power, he elevated Davos from knight to lord, and from lord to hand of the king.
3: Yes, he did. So, Stannis' reputation throughout the Seven Kingdoms, and among fans, is that of a man of absolute morality and resolute justice. Yet, when examined more closely, Stannis' moral decision-making seems to have profound flexibility.
0: And in this we see both good and bad intent, as well as good and bad outcomes. We also see Stannis as approaching something resembling utilitarianism in matters of both justice and morality.
3: Right. In Stannis' stated view, fealty to the king was what was owed by noble and commoner alike. But when Stannis' brother Robert rose in rebellion against the crown, Stannis was faced with a difficult moral choice.
0: He was. He even says, quote, Ares, if only you knew that was a hard choosing, my blood or my liege, my brother or my king.
3: Meaning, if Stannis chose to keep faith with Aerys II, he would place himself in opposition to Robert. If he chose his brother over the king, he would violate his oath of loyalty to the king. It was a hard choosing, but in the end Stannis chose his brother over the king. More than simply aligning with his brother in the rebellion, he actively fought, and starved, for his brother's cause. And in this, we see an early example of Stannis' flexible view of ethics.
0: So, as we also saw in the example of Proudwing, Stannis abandoned the faith of the Seven when it showed itself to be false in Stannis's eyes. However, he showed a surprising amount of religious toleration for those who practiced other faiths. While Melisandra and others counseled Stannis to adopt decidedly intolerant religious practices, Stannis refused. Moreover, he seems to accept that Davos is a believer of the faith.
3: But to say that Stannis had something of a modern view regarding the freedom of religion wouldn't be quite correct. Stannis did order the godswood burned at Storm's End as an offering to R'hllor after he seized the castle, though how much of that was Stannis' instigation or Melisandre's is up for debate.
0: True, and the fact remained that the faith of R'hllor was not widely practiced in Westeros and was viewed with suspicion and fear by many Westerosi. This was something that Stannis came to recognize over the course of the books, for Stannis, perhaps the biggest stumbling block to winning more sores to his cause was his involvement with R'hllor.
3: Yeah, though many who came to his side after Renly's death swore fealty both to Stannis and to R'hllor, there were others that did not. Were those that didn't treated unequally, persecuted, or executed?
0: In fact, no. Davos Seaworth was elevated to handship despite his renewed adherence to the Faith of the Seven, while useless practitioners of R'hllor, such as Lord Alistair Florent, were demoted and later executed for treason.
3: Right. And this religious toleration as a means of expanding also extended to the old gods of the North. Stannis could have attempted to force a new religion on the Northmen, but he resisted that impulse in two key ways. First, he decided to leave Melisandre at Castle Black instead of taking her on campaign with him in the North.
0: And later, when those fervent in their devotion to the Lord of Light advised Stannis to burn unbelievers to stir lord to fight on behalf of Stannis's beleaguered host, granted, he later executed some of his men through immolation, but it was not as an offering to R'hllor. Rather, it was a punishment for cannibalism. Moreover, these men were almost certainly Southerners and possibly adherents to the faith of Relore.
3: So all this is to say that Stannis, while certainly not having modern conceptions of freedom of religion, nevertheless had a flexible outlook of religion.
0: It really didn't matter to Stannis whether the men sworn to him practiced the faith of R'hllor, the faith of the seven, or the old faith of the old gods, What mattered was their utility in serving his cause. And in this, Stannis displayed a pragmatic and flexible approach to religion.
3: Okay, so now let's take a look at Stannis' ability to make friends and allies. This is often perceived by fans and in-universe characters as poor. And to be fair to this viewpoint, Stannis does himself no favors through his brusque speech and demeanor. However, when examined closely, Stannis actually shows a less-than-iron-willed approach to diplomacy.
0: Well, this is kind of part and parcel of Stannis' character evolution. In Clash and early in Storm, Stannis' approach to diplomacy is to demand fealty in exchange for pardons. When Renly died, Stannis sent envoys to the Tyrells demanding their fealty in exchange for clemency for their treason. The response from Highgarden was to simply imprison Stannis' envoys and swear to Joffrey. Stannis' outlook on diplomacy had not improved when, following the deaths of Robb Stark and Balin Greyjoy, he grudgingly decided to offer pardons to the Iron Islands and the North in exchange for their loyalty.
3: So this quid pro quo of pardons in exchange for fealty didn't do Stannis much good on the diplomatic front. However, by the end of Storm, we start to see Stannis' thinking evolve considerably, if not fully.
0: Right. Take the case of Stannis' offer of legitimization in Winterfell to Jon Snow. Previously, the North had been defended by a warden acting as the Iron Throne's representative in the region. The Starks had been wardens of the North since the time of Aegon's conquest, operating out of the castle Winterfell. With Eddard Stark and his legitimate sons dead, or rather presumed dead, there remained only one candidate in Stannis's mind for the position.
3: Yes, Jon Snow, the confirmed bastard son of Eddard Stark. As a bastard, he couldn't inherit Winterfell without a royal legitimization. He had sworn vows to the Night's Watch and had been instrumental in the defense of Castle Black during the siege. But Stannis needed a Stark to hold the position Warden of the North So he offered to legitimize Jon Snow as John Stark and appoint him to the position of Warden of the North. Jon Stark would serve as a unifying force for Stannis' attempts to unite the North against the threat of the others.
0: Unfortunately, this attempt fell through when Jon Snow was elected as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. But it shows an evolution in Stannis' mindset in diplomacy. It indicated that he was getting beyond quid pro quo thinking in terms of diplomacy. Importantly, this wouldn't be the last time that Stannis showed a diplomatic flexibility.
3: Right. In the north, Stannis had to defeat the Boltons. To do so, he needed allies. But Stannis' first attempts to secure homage and allegiance from the northern lords were dismal failures. He sent out letters to all the northern lords demanding their fealty. One house, the Karstarks, duplicitously declared for Stannis. Other houses never responded. Others, such as the Mormons, declared they would never swear fealty to anyone whose name was not Stark.
0: Well, homage might have been owed to Stannis by these houses and their lords, but Stannis' approach of demanding their loyalty did not really result in receiving these pledges he desperately needed to win in the North. In a way, Stannis' petulance and brutal behavior when he received lukewarm responses from the North is kind of a caricature of how he's perceived by fans in the realm. Fortunately for Stannis, he had Jon Snow.
3: Yeah, Jon Snow counseled Stannis to refrain from demanding fealty. Instead, John had a different idea for how Stannis could win the loyalty of the Northmen. Here's the passage from Dance. "'Ask,' I said, not beg,' John pulled back his hand. "'It is no good sending messages. Your Grace will need to go to them yourself. Eat their bread and salt, drink their ale, listen to their pipers, praise the beauty of their daughters and the courage of their sons, and you'll have their swords. The clans have not seen a king since Torrhen Stark bent his knee. Your coming does them honor. Command them to fight for you, and they'll look at one another and say, Who is this man? He's no king of mine.
0: Asking for help made it more possible for Stannis to win allies, and sure enough, these clansmen decided to throw their lot in with Stannis, as we find the Northern Clansmen attacking the Ironborn at Deepwood Mine. It's really a turning point in Stannis' evolution and would have larger consequences.
3: Well, most of the Northern clans and noble houses were fighting with Stannis not on behalf of his claim to the Iron Throne, but in order to rescue Arya Stark. And Stannis had to be aware of this motivation. It likely grated on his pride considerably, yet he allowed these men into his ranks and considered them some of the best soldiers in the north, giving them prestigious positions within his army.
0: Now, our final glimpse of Stannis comes from the Theon sample chapter from The Winds of Winter. So, spoilers going forward. In that chapter, we find Stannis waiting for the Boltons and the Freys to attack him near Winterfell. Stannis' coalition was as diverse as they'd come in A Song of Ice and Fire.
3: Yeah, that's right. Under his banners were men from the Stormlands, soldiers from the Reach, noble northern houses, and gruff mountain clansmen. Freezing in near starvation, they remained loyal to Stannis and ready to die for him in the battle to come. The fact that there was such a diversity in Stannis's army speaks volumes to his diplomatic and negotiation ability. Is this the work of a king who would break before bending?
0: I don't think so. Now, what happens to Stannis in the Winds of Winter and beyond has yet to be revealed to the readers— But I think that Stannis' diplomatic ability will likely see him gain new allies. I believe that Stannis will win the battle of Winterfell, something I've written on at length in my blog. But I also think that Stannis will pardon the lords who fought for the Boltons, provided that they bend the knee.
3: Well, Stannis Baratheon is and probably always will be a controversial character in the world of Song of Ice and Fire and the fandom. The criticism of Stannis as hard, unyielding, and inflexible is actually unjust. As we've seen, Stannis consistently bent, and this flexibility would prove time and again to be crucial to his success and survival.
0: You know, Donal died fighting against the Wildling invasion before Stannis could arrive at the Wall, but I wonder how he would have viewed Stannis had he survived. Would he have held to the view that Stannis was iron, or would he have had a more positive appraisal? I actually think it's the latter. In the end, Donal would have realized the truth. Stannis, not Robert, was the true steel.
3: Okay, and that's our re examination of Stannis. And thank you, Jeff, for providing the detailed notes for that discussion.
0: Thank you, Lady Gwen. That was a lot of fun.
3: Well, you're welcome. So, Jeff's full 7,000 word essay on this topic, entitled Iron Bends Reexamining Stannis Baratheon, will be released by the Tower of the Hand. At the time of recording, we're still waiting for the release details and whether it will be in print or ebook format. But we've read the full essay, and we think it's great. So best of luck with the release, Jeff.
0: Thanks. And for everybody listening, check out the Tower of the Hand ebook. It's not just me. It's a bunch of other really cool people who are contributing to it. Uh, the people from History of Westeros, Stefan Sasse, and a bunch of other really cool folks, too. So check it out when it comes out.
3: Okay, great. We're looking forward to it. And also, Jeff will be joining Yolkboy later on for an in-depth discussion regarding Stannis' military prowess. But next, as promised, we're going to have a reading of a story from Stannis' youth, leading into a discussion about Mel and Davos as the two birds on Stannis Baratheon's shoulders. Stannis stood abruptly. Rhaegar, why is that so hard? They will not love me, you say. When have they ever loved me? How can I lose something I have never owned? He moved to the south window to gaze out at the moonlit sea. I stopped believing in gods the day I saw the wind proud break up across the bay. Any god so monstrous as to drown my mother and father would never have my worship, I vowed. In King's Landing, the High Septon would prattle at me of how all justice and goodness flowed from the seven, but all I ever saw of either was made by men. When I was a lad, I found an injured goshawk and nursed her back to health. Proudwing, I named her. She would perch on my shoulder and flutter from room to room after me and take food from my hand, but she would not soar. Time and again I would take her hawking, but she never flew higher than the treetops. Robert called her Weakwing. He owned a Gerfalcon named Thunderclap who never missed a strike. One day our great-uncle Sir Harbert told me to try a different bird. I was making a fool of myself with Proudwing, he said, and he was right. Stannis Baratheon turned away from the window and the ghosts who moved upon the southern sea. The seven have never brought me so much as a sparrow. It is time I tried another hawk, Davos. A red hawk.
2: So, some interesting background on Stannis's sad history there. And it seems like the ghosts of his past are influencing his future policies. So now we're going to look at Stannis' relationship with Davos and Mel, where we feel there's some very interesting dynamics going on.
3: Yeah, okay, so in that passage from A Clash of Kings, Stannis talks about his disillusionment with the Seven, which came after he witnessed his parents' death in a storm on Shipbreaker Bay. He then goes on to equate the faith of the Seven with his one-time pet goshawk, while suggesting that the faith of Valor might be a different kind of hawk altogether. Not only does he reveal a pragmatic and somewhat cynical view of religion, but the thrust of the discussion leaves some room for correlating Davos and Mel with those two religions. In this sense, one could view Davos and Mel, arguably the chief of his advisors, as opposing birds on his shoulders.
2: And perhaps like Odin, who was a Norse god, he had ravens on his shoulder, Huginn and Munin, who represent thought and memory – or the shoulder angels of Christian iconography, Mel and Davos represent a duality in Stannis' thinking that in his cynical pragmatism, he feels free to embrace.
3: Yeah, it's been argued by Jeff in the previous section that Stannis grows in flexibility surrounding the issue of religion as his arc progresses, and it's possible this could be tied to Davos's rise as a principal advisor. In this sense, Davos could represent, perhaps not the seven precisely, but respect for the fates of the fathers in something that might be called memory, as embodied by Odin's raven Mugen, while Melisandre, on the other hand, represents the new faith, prescience and forethought, or the concept of thought as embodied by Huguen.
2: So we first see both Davos and Melisandre in Crescent's point of view, where we learn that Davos and Crescent seem to have a mutual respect. Well, Crescent and Melisandre have a mutual wariness.
3: Right. Crescent finds Mel's influence on Stannis to be dangerous, to say the least. When a comment by Solis makes it plain to him that Melisandre will advocate, if not actively foster, Stannis killing Renly... Cressen determines that he has to kill Mel.
2: Right, he does. Yeah, we know from Mel's point of view in A Dance with Dragons that the very first thing she'd learned to see in her flames and also the first thing she always looks for was danger to her own person. So she was probably perfectly aware of Cressen's plan all along. While Stannis later confesses that he didn't want Crescent to die, he appears to suggest there was some inevitability to his death. Meaning, Mel was convinced him that Crescent's death was necessary, and if we do know anything about Stannis, maybe he believed that it was just.
3: Right. Well, Davos, on the other hand, tries to remind Stannis of Crescent's wisdom and faithfulness, And when Davos determines to kill Mel himself after Blackwater, she again proves that she's aware of dangers to herself.
2: Yes, she foiled that plan ahead of time. And later in A Storm of Swords, while smuggling Edric's storm to freedom, Davos asserts that Mel perceives these dangers in her flames. He's reached an uneasy stalemate with the Red Woman, perhaps partly based on his idea that perhaps no mortal weapon could kill her. Right,
3: right. Both Bell and Davos exert greater influence upon Stannis than any other advisor we see until Jon Snow convinces him of his course of action relative to the North in A Dance with Dragons. It's Mel who directs most of his policy in A Clash of Kings, with her promises of delivering his kingdom to him using the divine power at her disposal.
2: And really, Mel does bring him Storm's End and his brother's death. Because she's interpreted her vision of the Blackwater defeat... As a morrow never made, she encourages Stannis in besieging the city, going as far as to predict victory, though Davos remains naturally cautious.
3: And after the defeat of the Blackwater becomes a reality, Stannis retreats to Dragonstone to grind his teeth and consider his options. Melisandre begins to prepare Stannis to turn his focus to the battle to come. It says... These little wars are no more than a scuffle of children before what is to come. The one whose name may not be spoken is marshalling his power, a power fell and evil and strong beyond measure. Soon comes the cold and the night that never ends.
2: And from A Storm of Swords onwards, Davos is given increasing access and trust due to his loyalty and pragmatism. Both Mel and Davos prove to be devoted to Stannis and are quite single-minded and confident of what they believe in, so they do share some common ground in spite of their obvious and many differences.
3: Yeah, and the result is that they're great foils to each other.
2: Yeah, and we see how they work as foils in the half-an-onion scene before the shadow birth.
3: Exactly, and the rotten onion speech. While Melisandre advocates a very black-and-white worldview, which seems on the surface to fit with Stannis's all-or-nothing view of justice and truth, Davos has a more nuanced viewpoint. Davos has the appearance of being very black-and-white, while his devotion and loyalty to Stannis frame his commitment to the truth.
2: But like Stannis, Davos can really see the value in actions that perhaps Mel can't. In Relying Upon Her Flames... Mel can sometimes, and too often, miss the simple conclusions about people that Davos sees quite clearly. This, along with his commitment to the truth, turns out to be exactly what Stannis values in him, as we see when he raises Davos to a lordship and the office of hand of the king. It says, "'Do you swear to serve me loyally all your days, and to give me honest counsel and swift obedience?'
3: Yeah, and in spite of Davos' objections, Stannis reminds him, All I ask of you are the things you've always given me. Honesty, loyalty, service. What Stannis needs is someone honest and sensible enough to help him win his temporal kingdom in advance of the great battle Melisandre is preparing him for.
2: And following the escape of Edric Storm, it seems that in spite of Davos' transgression... Stannis can't bring himself to let go of the one and only honest and faithful advisers at his disposal. When Davos presents a letter from the Night's Watch, which contains information Davos knows Mel has seen in her flames, we see perhaps the first intersection of their agendas.
3: Yes. Now from Davos's viewpoint, the defense of Westeros from the wildling threat is a pragmatic strategy aimed at gaining the support of the northern lords by defending the kingdom as a true king should. As he tells Stannis, you had the cart before the horse, trying to win the throne to save the kingdom, rather than trying to save the kingdom to win the throne.
2: And Mel, on the other hand, sees the wall as a place where possibly the next battle for the dawn will begin. In her view, Stannis is Azor high reborn, man's saviour from the horror of an endless winter. Yet for the first time in Stannis' quest for the throne, his principal advisers do have a common recommendation.
3: Right. So once Stannis begins to balance the advice of these two, to consider both thought and memory, as it were, his way must seem more clear. Certainly, he sends Davos on his pragmatic mission to raise White Harbour with the clear goal of gaining the support of the Northern Lords. Mel remains at his side to advise him on what the flames tell her about the enemy and the battle to come.
2: Right, and so to conclude, both Melisandra and Davos are really invaluable resources for Stannis. From the shadow baby and the supernatural knowledge to giving him steady and honest advice... Without these two voices on his shoulders, Stannis' way forward might not have been so clear to him, and his opportunities and successes might have been dramatically different.
3: Yeah, though their voices are sometimes in opposition, their common goal of success for their king unites them in a unique and powerful way. And that's the end of our consideration of Mel and Davos as the two birds on Stannis' shoulders.
2: Yeah, I do like their mental image. Of Davos and Mel perch on Stannis' shoulders And <laughs> um, okay, next we're going to assess Stannis's prowess as a military commander
3: And to lead us in, here's a reading Of one of the most exciting moments in the books In storm, the Night's Watch are losing control Against a large and fearsome host of wildlings Just as all seems lost, through a John point of view We see a certain claimant to the Iron Throne Arrive just in the nick of time Take it away, Yoke Boy.
2: More and more men were pouring from the trees. Not only knights now, but free riders and mounted bowmen and men at arms in jacks and kettle helms. Dozens of men, hundreds of men. A blaze of banners flew above them. The wind was whipping them too wildly for John to see the sigils, but he glimpsed yellow, so much yellow, yellow banners with the red device. Whose arms were those? East and north and northeast. He saw bands of wildlings trying to stand and fight, but the attackers rode right over them. The free folk still had the numbers, but the attackers had steel armour and heavy horses. In the thickest part of the fray, John saw Mance standing tall in his stirrups. His red and black cloak and raven-winged helm made him easy to pick out. He had his sword raised and men were rallying to him when a wedge of knights smashed into them with lance and sword and long axe. Mance's mare went up on her hind legs, kicking, and a spear took her through the breast. Then the steel tide washed over him. It's done, John thought. They're breaking. The wildlings were running, throwing down their weapons. Hornfoot men and cave dwellers and fens and bronze scales. They were running. Mance was gone. Someone was waving Hama’s head on a pole. Tormund's lines had broken. Only the giants on their mammoths were holding hairy islands in a red steel sea. The fires were leaping from tent to 10, and some of the tall pines were going up as well. And through the smoke, another wedge of armored riders came on barded horses. Floating above them were the largest banners yet, royal standards as big as sheets, a yellow one with long painted tongues that showed a flaming heart, and another like a sheet of beaten gold with a black stag prancing and rippling in the wind. Robert! John thought for one mad moment, remembering poor Owen. But when the trumpets blew again and the knights charged, the name they cried was Stannis. Stannis! Stannis! Okay, hope you enjoy that reading with the added battle sounds at the end there. It's one of my favourite moments in the entire series. Now, we have our guest Jeff back again. And we're going to talk about his website, Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, in a short while. But first, it's time to examine Stannis as a military commander. Jeff, who has a military background and is well versed in these kind of military analysis, has prepared some notes that we're going to talk through. So, hi Jeff. thanks for joining me for this chat. Would you like to start the ball rolling as we consider Stannis's military prowess?
0: No problem. OK, so the concept that runs through the story of A Song of Ice and Fire is that of war. Battles and wars rage across Westeros and Essos and sweep the characters in A Song of Ice and Fire into titanic struggles for power, lands,
2: honours and rights. Yes, yeah, so inevitably fans wonder who is the greatest military commander in the series. Jeff, who's the best commander, in your opinion? It's an interesting question, but I think it's too broad to really answer. There are a
0: lot of candidates put forward, but what qualities actually make them the best? For me, my own subjective idea is that best is a a determination that we make as individuals. We should rather be asking who is the most well-rounded military commander in Westeros.
2: Right. And so
0: how would you define well-rounded? Well, it's probably someone who's a good military strategist and an adept tactician, he would probably have broad experiences commanding at sea and on land. It's someone who would probably also be an expert defender and attacker, someone who wins battles as an infantry commander and as a maneuvered cavalry commander. And he would probably command respect from both his men and his enemies. So,
2: to be considered well-rounded, someone would need to fit all of this criteria. And who do you think fits best?
0: I think really the only individual in the series who fits this bill is Stannis Baratheon. To underline this, I think we should examine four of Stannis' battles where he shows different militaristic qualities each time. Uh, the first would be the holding of Storm's End. The second, the naval battle in the Greyjoy Rebellion. The third, the battle of the Blackwater, the really famous one. And then fourthly, the surprise at the wall, where you just had your last reading.
2: Yeah, so let's examine and demonstrate the different facets of Stannis's military abilities. First, the Storm's End, and we can see Stannis, the Defender.
0: Right. Storm's End was about defense. Stannis also seemed to live in the shadow of his brother, Robert. So it kind of stands to reason that Stannis' forced forays into military command came at the behest of his brother, Robert. When Robert rebelled, Stannis was tasked with holding Storm's End. Holding Storm's End was important for Robert, but for Robert, it was of kind of secondary value in defeating the Targaryens.
2: Right. But when Robert was defeated at the Battle of Ashford by Randall Tarly, it cleared Targaryen loyalist forces to move on Storm's End. The Tyrell army set up camp outside the walls of Storm's End, while the royal fleet, led by Paxter Redwin, Redwyn, closed off Shipbreaker Bay.
0: So, a lesser leader would have capitulated or sought honorable terms for surrender, but Stannis did nothing of the sort. His orders were to hold the castle and he would be damned if he surrendered. And so Stannis actually held the castle for against the might of the Reach for a whole year. And by the end of his tour... Uh, Stannis and his men were down to eating rats, but he held all the same until Lord Eddard Stark marched on Storm's End and the Reach dipped their Targaryen banners.
2: Yeah, this was a serious act of determination and defiance. Military integrity and mental strength on display here. Bear in mind that Stannis was only 18 or 19 years old at that time. Yes,
0: holding Storm's End like this with the Tyrells dining in the site proves outright that Stannis has the endurance, willpower and determination to be considered a great defender in military terms.
2: Okay, so now let's assess Stannis as a joint warfare commander and show his adaptability and versatility. These qualities are evident in Stannis' battle during the Greyjoy Rebellion.
0: Right. So Stannis' defense of Storm's End and his subsequent seizure of Dragonstone earned Stannis' a share of power in the new Baratheon realm. With Robert as king, Stannis was appointed to the position of Master of Ships. From this position, he commanded the Royal Navy of Westeros. So when the Iron Islands under Balon Greyjoy rose in rebellion a few years after Robert's Rebellion, Stannis would be the linchpin for all naval operations against the rebels. And the
2: Greyjoy struck before Robert could assemble the military assets of Westeros to respond to the rebellion. Victorian Greyjoy and the Iron Fleet sailed into Lannisport and burned the Lannister fleet that was preparing to sail against the Greyjoys. This surprise attack put the Iron Throne on the defense. Ironborn raided the west and Roderick Greyjoy laid siege to Seagard. Basically, the Greyjoy
0: Rebellion got off to a really great start, and it might have continued, except for a certain master of ships, Stannis, of course, being that master of ships. So Stannis again joined the royal fleet with his former enemy, Paxter Redwine, at the Arbor and sailed north along the west coast of Westeros. Off the coast of Fair Isle, he laid a trap for Victoria and Greyjoy. Victoria remembers what happened next.
2: Yeah, and I have the quote. It says... The memory of Fair Isle still rankled in the Iron Captain's memory. Stannis Baratheon had descended on the Iron Fleet from both north and south, whilst they were trapped in the channel between the island and the mainland, dealing Victarion his most crushing defeat.
0: So, kind of consider this. Stannis Baratheon won a crushing victory against a people whose military prowess was rooted in its naval superiority, and he defeated a rival commander who was perhaps the greatest naval commander seen in the series. That's incredible.
2: Yes, it really is. For Victarion, seafaring was a way of life from a very young age. Stannis had been involved with ships for a relatively short amount of time in comparison, and he smashed the Iron Fleet. It's seriously impressive. And with the Ironborn sea power destroyed, Robert and his army
0: could now move easily into the Iron Islands and destroy the Greyjoy Rebellion. This is what's known as a shaping operation in military circles which is defined as an operation at any echelon that creates and preserves conditions for the success of the decisive operation. Shaping operations establish conditions for the decisive operation through effects on the enemy population, including
2: local leaders, and terrain. Yeah, and the actions of Stannis and his fleet cleared the Sunset Sea of the Iron Fleet and allowed for Robert and Ned to ferry royal soldiers into Pike for the main assault against the base of Balong Greyjoy's power. With the subsequent amphibious assault on Great Wick again being successfully led by Stannis, the put-down of the Greyjoy Rebellion shows us more of Stannis' military facets. He's versatile, adaptable, has transferable military leadership skills, and trapping the Iron Fleet against the mainland shows a top-class military tactic at work in defeating Victarion. Okay, so now that we're done with that, let's consider Stannis as a besieger. And
0: obviously, we need to examine what happened at Blackwater. So, the Siege of King's Landing is Stannis' greatest defeat, and many fans look at the events during the Battle of King's Landing as proof that Stannis is a poor commander. However, I believe that a closer inspection reveals Stannis at his near finest. In the battle, he again uses joint warfare and very nearly takes an impregnable city from the Lannisters, despite facing numerous terrain obstacles and massive city walls. In fact, if Tywin Lannister and Tyrell reinforcements didn't reach King's Landing in time,
2: Stannis would almost assuredly have been the victor. Let's examine that a little more closely. So, Stannis had a strong navy at Dragonstone and the ranks of his army swelled following the death of Renly. With that strong force, Stannis prepared to advance on King's Landing. Even with numerical superiority, the idea of seizing King's Landing by force of arms was ambitious. King's Landing had never been seized by force of arms before. In order to accomplish this task, Stannis's plan called for dividing his forces in two. He placed amphibious infantry aboard his ships, while his heavy horse and a contingent of his infantry advanced on foot north from Storm's End towards Blackwater Rush. In short, Stannis's navy would strike up Blackwater Rush and
0: clear the area of Lannister's ships. Marines would then seize a foothold at the base of the walls. Then, smaller ships would land on the southern bank of Blackwater Rush, picking up Stannis' men waiting on the south shore and ferry them across the river to enter the city through the river gate. Salador San would have the secondary mission to stay outside of the mouth of the river and screen the amphibious
2: assault. And during all of this, Stannis would remain in the best position to command and control these various elements. Stannis leads from the back. He would command, and in doing so would differentiate himself from those like Robb Stark who leads from the front in battles. Yeah, when the fleet did arrive at the mouth of
0: Blackwater, the commander, Sir Emery Florent, made a fateful decision. Instead of sending scouts to ascertain the size and dispersion of what Tyrion had waiting for him, He committed the majority of his force immediately, and only left Salador San's screening force outside of the mouth of the river. Sir Imri Florent was not without his reasons. Having lost a dozen ships sailing north, he did not want to lose more ships to Acts of the Gods, but not taking a peek at what's ahead of you is a damnable folly.
2: Yeah, the entire fleet, aside from Salador San and the Lyseni sail sails, advanced towards the city walls and were met by fifty-odd Lannister ships. While the fighting was fierce, Stannis' fleet broke through the first line Lannister fleet an inch closer to the walls where they were met with the scorpion and archer fire from the city walls. A few ships managed to land soldiers at the base of the city walls, but the imp had two more surprises in store for the navy.
0: Yeah, Tyrion has his wildfire trap and the giant chain. Much of Stannis' fleet were trapped and burned. Only eight ships were able to land the Marines below the walls of King's Landing before the fleet was destroyed by wildfire and the chain. And this force was too small to take the city by
2: itself. And all probably seemed lost at that point to Stannis and his men until Tyrion's own plan had the second order effect of creating a bridge of ships across Blackwater Rush.
0: A really common saying among military leaders is no campaign plan survives first contact with the enemy. A follow-up maxim, and the unofficial slogan of the United States Marine Corps is, quote, improvise, adapt, and overcome. Both apply to the actions of Stannis' army at this stage of the battle. We don't know whether it was Stannis himself, a subordinate lord, or the troops themselves who made the quick decision to cross the bridge of ships. What we do know is that Stannis' soldiers crossed the burning, creaking bridge of ships towards the river gate, bringing a ram along with them.
2: Yeah, and despite the chaos, they still brought the ram, And this organisation and thinking under extreme pressure must surely reflect favourably on their commander. And at the same time, Stannis landed troops outside of the King's Gate at the southwestern point in the city. Tyrion sent sorties of mounted soldiers out to confront the threat. While they were able to stymie Stannis' assaults against the River Gate and the King's Gate, they were unable to stop it and took heavy losses from Stannis' soldiers. At this stage, Stannis, given the circumstances, is actually doing really well, adapting and making quick and effective decisions. Right, and then along comes Tyrion's last ditch effort to save the city by
0: leading a successful assault and defending the river gate. Then when Tyrion was thought to be slain at the bridge of ships, the defenders were truly in disarray and King's Landing was for Stannis'
2: taking. Victory seemed assured. However, before the city could be taken, Renly arrived. Garland showed up wearing Renly's armor and Bannerman began to switch sides. Tywin and Garland's vanguard smashed through Stannis and a great victory in the face of adversity was snatched from him. So what can be learned about Stannis here? Well, I
0: think overall, Stannis's plan was a really impressive one and one that should have resulted in his victory. It was only through bad luck that Stannis was defeated in battle. Also, either by accident or design, Stannis' army was unique in that it took the initiative during the battle by crossing the bridge of ships. Finally, while Stannis' plan was excellent, it wasn't perfect. Though we aren't given POV insight into Stannis' commands at the battle, we do see Stannis' army adjusting to attack different points in the city. A good military leader makes small adjustments to ensure victory.
2: Right, so despite being Stannis' biggest military failure, there's no reason to believe that his plan wasn't a good one. The troops were well organized, and if it wasn't for the surprise appearance from Tywin and the Tyrells, Stannis would probably have achieved his military objective in spite of Tyrion's excellent defensive surprises here. One remaining question mark for me is that Imri Florent, in retrospect, was the wrong man to lead that fleet into
0: Blackwater. Given that Davis knew the water so well and is an astute person in general, it's clear he would have been the perfect man for the job. Davis later reflects that Imri just sailed right past the two chain winch towers when this had sent alarm bells ringing for Davis.
2: Right. So, does this decision reflect poorly on Stannis as a military commander? Does it highlight a weakness with Stannis's people skills and choices for personnel? Well, it's a complex issue, and it's too easy to say Stannis should
0: have led with Davis. Every Florent is Stannis' brother-in-law, and the feudal organization and social strata dictate that certain people are very important. You need their support, and there's almost a protocol that would be unwise to break. In this case, the Florents and their influence were important to Stannis, and raising a common smuggler to supreme naval commander would have almost certainly been an insult to the honor of honor Honorcray's nobility, especially ones as vain as the Florence.
2: Yeah, that's right. I think we can say that in hindsight, Davos should have led the ships and perhaps would have avoided the traps. But with a deeper contemplation, perhaps the mistake was quite understandable. Stannis does raise Davos to hand afterwards, perhaps an indication that Stannis does learn from his errors. Okay, so after that look at Blackwater, now let's look at Stannis at the wall. So
0: after the defeat at Blackwater, Stannis was left with a really small host, uh, essentially powerless to try and take the Iron Throne. The Night's Watch needed help, and Stannis answered. He arrived at East Watch, and realizing that time was of the essence, he left his infantry and took an entirely mounted force of Night's Watchmen and his own knights and cavalry, and advanced west at a rapid pace. Previously, we saw Stannis as a good naval commander, a good defender, and a really unlucky besieger. Here we see Stannis as the greatest maneuver commander this side of Brendan Blackfish and Robb Stark.
2: So Stannis was heading towards a huge wildling host. Jeff, do you want to talk us through the tactics that he used here?
0: The plan was simple and direct. When Stannis and Cotter Pike were near the wildling camp, he divided his combined force into three parts. The Night's Watch under command of Cotter Pike struck first, attacking the left flank of the wildling lines. Man's raider rallied his force to confront this threat, while Stannis positioned his main thrust to the north and northeast of the wildling host. With the wildling host fighting the Night's Watch on the left flank, Stannis initiated his attack by having Melisandre burn Varamir Sixskins' eagle, and then the main attack began from the north and the northeast of the wildling lines.
2: Okay, so Stannis' three-pronged attack was really decisive here, wasn't it? Exactly. While one
0: flank was engaged, the main force struck the rear of the camp, shooting fire arrows at the tents and blowing horns. This caused mass confusion among the wildlings and sent the mammoths into a frenzy. In this, Stannis achieved a single envelopment while giving the wildlings an avenue to flee. And while some may think that giving a lane to the wildlings was foolish, I disagree. Completely surrounded, the wildlings would have the ability to reform and use their overwhelming numerical advantage to defeat Stannis's
2: smaller army. Okay, so by giving the wildlings an avenue to run, it ensures they remained in disarray. Is a good point. So, with much of the camp on fire and wildling forces in complete disarray, Stannis's knights charged Mance's lines. The wildlings, uh, apart from the giants, broke en masse. Amidst the chaos, Stannis's men charged against them again. So, a fine victory for Stannis against a huge host. The battle at the wall
0: shows us Stannis using mobility and the element of surprise in his military skills. What's so interesting about this battle is something that's left unstated in, in the text. Stannis witnessed the tactics that had been used to defeat him at King's Landing and adapted those very tactics to the Battle of the Wall. This shows a nimble field commander able to use enemy tactics to achieve overwhelming victory.
2: Okay, and to conclude, Jeff, after this analysis that we've just had, do you think Stannis is the most well-rounded battle commander in this series? Definitely. We've
0: talked about his ability to defend his willpower and dedication, his adaptability, naval prowess, his siege tactics were unlucky not to have paid off at the Blackwater, and he has a variety of tactics up his sleeve, as we saw him with both mobility and surprise at the wall. Put all this together and I think he's unmatched. A smart, effective and formidable military mind. And he's going
2: to need a great military mind as he faces the Boltons and the Freys in the upcoming Battle of Ice, as we'll discuss later. So, thanks very much for the notes on Military Stannis, Jeff. And we chose you to join us today because you have a very impressive a Song of Ice and Fire website called Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. So now let's talk about that. Sure. Sounds good. First of all, you're obviously interested in politics and have a military background. So do you think George covers these aspects of his world well? And what draws you in about the way he's handled these themes? Well, first of all, thanks for so much for having me on again. Um,
0: I've really been enjoying Radio Westrose since episode one came out, so it's an honor to be with you all today. So does George cover the military and political aspects of a series well? Um, Far be it for me to say no, considering that it's George's universe. We're just playing in it after all. But no, in all seriousness, George R. R. Martin has done an outstanding job of creating a fantasy world that somehow draws us in on account of the realism found in it. The realism, first and foremost, is one in which we personally identify with the characters, setting, and plot. In terms of the military and political side of A Song of Ice and Fire, George R. R. Martin really does cover these aspects well. Though George has never served in the military personally or been elected to political office, it's clear that he's a student of political and military history. On the political side, George R. R. Martin begs, borrows, and steals from across history to create the political intrigues that we so readily enjoy reading. Much of the power structures of the Iron Throne have their bases in English history. As a really kind of small example, the wardens that we hear about in the series were based on Lord Wardens of the Marches in English history. On the military side, George grasps medieval military warfare extraordinarily well, though he admittedly sometimes isn't the best when it comes to soldier numbers and the speed of movement. But what separates George R. R. Martin from a lot of other fiction and fantasy authors is that he spends time away from the lords huddled around their campaign map and with the soldiers down in the mud. Think of Septim Marybald's broken men's speech. We actually hear how it feels to be written
2: down on by Nearly Invincible Knights. Spoiler, it's awful. Right, it is. And when did you start this blog, and how did it come about? Can you tell us about the evolution?
0: Sure. A little over a year ago, I was writing theory and analysis posts on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, and I realized that I wanted to branch out and write in a blog format to write on more topics at greater depth and potentially reach a wider audience. I previously blogged, so I was somewhat familiar with the format, my first essay series on the blog was a command analysis of Tywin and Lannister in five parts. From there, I wrote speculative analyses on the two penultimate upcoming battles in the Winds of Winter, the Battle of Fire and Marine and the Battle of Ice at Winterfell. I also wrote political analyses of Littlefinger, Varys and Roose Bolton and other analysis pieces as they've come to mind. The response from the Song of Ice and Fire community has been incredible. Our readers are awesome and I'm happy to report that at last count we had over 658,000 unique page visits to the blog since its inception one year ago.
2: Yeah, that's really impressive. And you write a lot for the blog, but you've also let two posters called Militant Penguin and Something Like a Lawyer join in the fun. They post on the blog too. Can you tell us how and why you started working with these two? So
0: Something Like a Lawyer was my veritable and honorable debate opponent on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit for a long time. So I figured why beat him when I can have him join me? Uh, I don't think that's the expression, but... (laughs) No, in all seriousness, Something Like a Lawyer has a brilliant analytical mind for all the Song of Ice and Fire material out there. So I asked him to join up with the blog. He started off by writing a fantastic three-part analysis of Hoster Tully and then followed up with a two-parter on John Arryn. He's also read one-off pieces on Northern Honor and a really innovative look at the First Targaryen that everyone listening should read. Additionally, Something Like a Lawyer is now even a published author over at Tower of the Hand and has written two essays for them. Militant Penguin was another one of those geniuses Song of Ice and Fire minds that I really wanted to write for the blog. He does innumerable analytical work in the Song of Ice and Fire, both on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit and for the blog. I was doing character analysis discussions on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, but when my workload became too much, there was only one person to pick up my slack, and that was Milton Penguin. On the blog, he's been writing a series on the men who would be kings, in which he looks at the various kings and analyzes what other individuals in the series say and think about them. It's really cool and it builds on the whole every man is a hero's own mind theme which runs throughout the series. My personal favorite essay of his so far has been on Rhaegar Targaryen.
2: Yeah, we've seen the Men Who Would Be Kings essays, me and Lady Gwyn were reading it and the Rhaegar essay is very good so you listeners should consider reading it. And you have lots of essays on the site. It's a really impressive body of work. You've covered Stannis, Robb Stark, Littlefinger, Hoster Tully, Jaime Lannister, Tywin and more. Can you tell us what's in store for the future of wars and politics of ice and fire? Something like Lawyer and Militant Penguin
0: have some really great essays coming out. I shouldn't spoil their topics, but suffice to say, they're really awesome. As for me, I've been working on several new essay series. The first essay series is one I've entitled The Dragon's Mercy, The Violent Future Path of Daenerys Targaryen. That essay series will be a speculative analysis of where I think George R. R. Martin will take Daenerys Targaryen in The Winds of Winter. I'll start by analyzing two of the most prominent thematic elements of Danny's story and how these themes will inevitably lead to a violent and bloody future arc for Daenerys Targaryen. And then I'll switch gears a little and talk specifically about where Danny will go in the Winds of Winter through analyzing the sometimes subtle foreshadowing that George R. R. Martin loves to embed in his story. But as a mini-spoiler, I'm fairly confident that Daenerys will bring fire and blood to Essos first and probably not arrive in Westeros until A Dream of Spring. Additionally, I have one other other essay series I'm working on. I shouldn't really spoil the actual work I'm doing, but the essay is tentatively titled The Agents of Chaos.
2: Uh, Do you have any guesses on what that might be about? I might have a guess or two about that one, Jeff. I'll keep it to myself. And for all the people for whom the wars and military aspects of A Song of Ice and Fire isn't of much interest and who might feel it's not really up their street, can you tell us why examining the wars and military strategies is a really important part of fully understanding this text?
0: Veteran war correspondent Chris Hedges wrote a really great book called War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, in which he said, quote, War exposes the capacity for evil that lurks just below the surface within us all. George R. R. Martin has often made the point that the human heart in conflict with itself is the only thing worth writing about. In A Song of Ice and Fire, George R. R. Martin has created a universe which shows the realities of the human spirit in warfare. For me, the story of war in A Song of Ice and Fire is a character-driven human story. From moments of triumph to broken men, George R. R. Martin has created a fascinating portrait of men and women in times of great strife. George R. R. Martin himself has talked at some length about his views on war, saying in a Telegraph interview, quote, I'm fascinated by war. War brings out the best and the worst in people. Literature of the past used to celebrate the glory of war. Then the hippie generation of the 1970s wrote about the ugliness of it. I think there's truth in both. The truth in both aspect rings especially poignant both to my experiences in reading A Song of Ice and Fire and my own personal experience. Moreover, I found the triumphant tragedy found in The Wars of A Song of Ice and Fire, a macrocosm of the conflicts that individual characters experience in the series. So, A Song of Ice and Fire's take on war shows the breadth and depth of human experience much like actual war does, And I think that the emotional core of the story found in human conflict is a big
2: part of why we gravitate towards George's work in the first place. And it's great hearing your views on war, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining us here at Radio Westeros. You've made a really great contribution to our episode today, and we really like your work. Best of luck with Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, and we hope that some of you listeners will be checking it out, and we'll link via our website. So, Jeff, goodbye and thanks very much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Love being on with y'all and keep up the great work and contributions to the fandom. Cheers. Okay, and now it's time for a song from the fandom. Here's Rhymagar Targaryen with The One True King of Westeros. Don't know shit, if you think you know Stannis
1: The King of Westeros and most of the planet You stand against me, then you stand against justice Unlike Jaw, you know my claims got substance When shit hit the fan and Robert's Rebellion battles were fought, but my experience was telling, I held storms in, nearly starved to death, till I got saved by some onion breath, kept the Tyrells, tied up real tight, things might have gone different, they've been part of the fight, some would have been grateful for my loyal service, but not my big brother, that asshole's the worst, so I sailed on Dragonstone with a brand new fleet, crushed the Kraken, made those fools look weak, married to Elise, but things felt a bit tainted, Robert fucked in our bed, with a foreign acquaintance, Birth dead sons before a first living girl she came down with great skill makes me want to hurl the name Stannis it ain't one to forget I could fuck you right up without breaking a sweat I don't get luck but I get respect so better stand down before your shit gets wrecked I'm proven in battle as a veteran commander to say any less would be irreverent slander get a sense of duty as the rightful king if you still got doubts check the light I bring after thinking a while about Robert's children I came a conclusion that was somewhat chilling I Followed leads to test my theory It all checked out, so now I'm feeling leery Told John Aaron and next thing he's toast So I pieced out the Dragonstone to gather my host Sent out Davids to help fill up the harbor Got a man way up before departure He brought back pirates But we need every ship I promised him gold If we could end this shit quick I've never cared much About religion But this chick Melisandre's got me Feeling quite smitten She sees victory Up in her night fires Better win the day Or her god's a liar Turn my back on the seven The day my parents died So let's see how it goes With R'hllor on my side The name Stannis, It ain't one to forget I could fuck it right up Without breaking a sweat I don't get love But I get respect We stand opposed Take some time to reflect. I'm proven in battle as a veteran commander. To say any less, would be irreverent slander. Got a sense of duty as the rightful king. When I light the fire, gonna make them sing.
2: So, hope you enjoyed that song. A very humorous look at Stannis Baratheon. That was Rymegar Targaryen with The One True King of Westeros. Rymagar has a project called Westerhyme on Soundcloud. We'll link to that on our website. And he has over 20 of these nerdcore hip-hop tributes to various A Song of Ice and Fire characters. Rymagar is very knowledgeable and that comes through on the lyrics and they're very funny. And so thanks to you Rymegar, for getting this Stannis track done at short notice. And best of luck with your Westerheim project. We really recommend it.
3: Now let's talk about Stannis' immediate fate and the predicament he's found himself in. Upon the advice of Jon Snow, Stannis decides against marching on the Dreadfort and allies with the Northern clansmen. After taking Deepwood Mott, he turns his attention to Winterfell and Roose
2: Bolton. In the chapter called The King's Prize, we see Stannis' host leave Deepwood Mott, and the journey to Winterfell is said to be a 15-day march. 300 miles as the raven flies. Stannis displays his usual determination here. He says, we will march and we will free Winterfell or die in the attempt.
3: Yeah, Stannis is a serious man and his message is clear. It's all or nothing. At this stage, Stannis is in a decent position. He's acquired an equally determined contingent of northern clans with common cause. He has momentum and the confidence in his military prowess. Forty-six miles are covered on the first two days by the host. As they enter the Wolfswood, a territory somewhat unsuitable for a large army with its narrow paths and so on, they make fourteen miles in a day.
2: And on the fourth day of the march, then came the snow. The marching pace decreases as the blizzards worsen, and soon it says, the king's host became a column of snowmen staggering through knee-high drifts. And by the third day of snow... The host is breaking apart and very little progress is actually being made. Remembering that all this time, Roose Bolton is sat in comfort within the high walls of Winterfell. Things start to look really grim for Stannis Baratheon.
3: Yes, they do. Stannis now has an ailing army, short on food, freezing, and with no shelter. The storm continues to worsen, and Asha thinks, this is a cold that drives men mad. Now it's clear that recruiting the clans was a very good idea. They're not waning in the same way the southern troops are. These conditions don't seem to deter them at all, or their thirst to bathe in Bolton blood.
2: Right, and the clans have these neat bear paws, they're called. They wear strips of wood and leather on their feet, allowing them to walk quickly across the snow, and fit these shoes on their horses, and the horses already seem more suited to the conditions than the heavier southern horses. They can march with relative pace and ease.
3: When horses begin to die and food supplies are running dangerously low, men are getting lost, and again it's pointed out that the common southerners are suffering the most. This is in contrast to the clans. The humorous Big Bucket Wool describes the terrible storm. He says, This is only autumn's kiss.
2: Yes, these hill tribes are really very used to these conditions and seem quite comfortable. At the same time, Justin Massey tells Stannis that men are so cold they're starting to wander off on their own just to go and die. Stannis responds, showing his unflinching determination in the face of absolute adversity. He says, let them, we press on.
3: So... The march to Winterfell was supposed to take 15 days, and after 15 days, Stannis and his host are less than halfway there. After 32 days, all vegetables and grains are gone, and the men are living on raw horse meat. Shortly after this, Stannis and his men reach an abandoned crofter's village, and that's where they stay. This village initially seems like the place where this army could all die. It says... Stannis Baratheon's host sat snowbound and unmoving, walled in by ice and snow, starving. However, this village might prove to be the key in Stannis' war.
2: Yeah, despite the men now being so desperate that some have actually resorted to cannibalism, Stannis suddenly has two things going for him right now. He learns that Roose Bolton has sent around half his men to engage with him. As Stannis points out in the Theon gift chapter, and spoilers for that here on, Bolton has blundered. All he had to do was sit inside his castle whilst we starved. Instead, he has sent some portion of his strength forth to give us battle.
3: And the second advantage Stannis has is his position holed up in this small crofter's village. He tells Theon, we hold the ground, and that I mean to turn to our advantage.
2: So, Stannis is suddenly confident and optimistic, it seems. He knows his enemy will be well-fed and fresh, yet still he seems to think that they will be no match for his depleted and starving army. Remember that Stannis is quite a realist. So, what has Stannis, this military mastermind, got up his sleeve?
3: Well, let's look at this crafter's village. When Stannis tells Theon, ''We hold the ground,'' Theon wonders what on earth he's talking about. Theon asks, what ground? Here? This misbegotten tower? This wretched little village? You have no high ground here. No walls to hide behind. No natural defences. Yet, replies Stannis.
2: Hmm, so what can Stannis do here? How can he fortify this crofter's village into a place where he can smash a superior force? Well, the first thing we're told about this crofter's village is that it's between two lakes, which are obviously now frozen. And we think, as others do, that Stannis will seek to use these lakes as some kind of trap. If this is what George has in mind, we might see a historical parallel unfold here. And we're not the first to wonder about this, but let's look at Alexander Nevsky and what is known as the Battle on the Ice, or the Battle of Lake Pepus.
3: Okay, so Nevsky was a 20-year-old Russian prince. Roman Catholic crusaders, known as the Teutonic Knights, were attacking Novgorodians, and were soon to meet Nevsky's host. Alexander Nevsky wanted to do battle on a place of his own choosing. Like Stanis, he wanted to use the land to his advantage. Nevsky retreated and drew his opponents onto a frozen lake. Fighting on the ice exhausted the crusaders with their heavy horse and armour. And to cut the story short, when they grouped to rally, the ice beneath them gave way and many of the knights drowned. Alexander Nevsky won his battle on the ice and was later proclaimed a Russian saint.
2: And this all happened in 1242. There's obviously more to the story, but that's the gist. With Stanis in a village with two lakes... It's obviously been noted by readers that we might have a Nevsky situation on our hands. So going back to the early part of Stannis' march, the army do actually pass by a frozen pond, and here's what happens.
3: Yeah, and this is back on the fifth day of the march. The baggage train crossed a rippling expanse of waist-high snowdrifts that concealed a frozen pond, When the hidden ice cracked beneath the weight of the wagons, three teamsters and their horses were swallowed up by the freezing water, along with two of the men who tried to rescue them.
2: And it's pointed out that someone who fell into the lake died, despite actually being rescued. This could be George giving us a very firm nod, letting us know early on that these frozen ponds and lakes mean death. And so, therefore, they could be a very effective weapon. Considering the Crofters' village further, there are also small wooded islands, and we've wondered if the islands could be used as part of a trap.
3: Yeah, if you imagine the village and these two lakes, the snow covering the vulnerable ice underneath, and then you have several islands with trees growing, visually this would give Bolton's men a false sense of security. You see a huge weirwood and some woodland, and you're not going to be wondering if you're looking at a lake.
2: Right, and also there's the Northmen with their bear paws. Like we said, the clans and their horses can travel quickly on snow. These bear paws that they're using enable them to actually walk on top of the snow. Again, if Bolton's men saw them moving so freely, it might appear... As if the snow isn't so thick, Bolton's men might ride onto the lake to attack the clans, and the clans could lure them in, and then move quickly away with their bear paws. They could even encircle them, leaving a portion of the troops stuck on the ice lake, ready to be swallowed up and drowned.
3: And it's worth noting, as with the Nevsky example, that aside from the danger of falling into the lakes, it's also just a terrible terrain to have to fight from, especially on horseback. It would be completely exhausting and would soon suck the spirit from any well-fed, confident attackers, as the crusaders found out.
2: Yeah, so these two lakes are what Stannis might be talking about when he insinuates he has natural defences on his side. And there's further clues about these lakes, we're sure many of you have noticed.
3: Yeah, soon after their arrival at the village, we have this quote. There are fish in those lakes, Horp told the king. We'll cut holes in the ice. The Northmen know how it's done.
2: And then we find out that the ice cutting has begun. They had spent most of it out on the ice, shivering beside a pair of holes they'd cut in the smaller of the frozen lakes, with fishing lines clutched in mitten clumsy hands.
3: And then later on, we have this. I know them, Lakes. You've been on them like maggots on a corpse, hundreds of you. Cut so many holes in the ice, it's a bloody wonder more haven't fallen through. Out by the island, there's places look like a cheese the rat's been at.
2: So the ice has been cut and weakened many times, and this is brought to our attention three times. Perhaps it's worth noting that it's by these islands that the ice might be the weakest. So maybe a few hints that this ice on the frozen water won't be staying solid for too long. With Stannis having already lost wagons and men to the frozen pond earlier, which he surely noticed and noted, it seems the lakes could be a large part of his strategy.
3: But perhaps Stannis has more up his sleeve. The lakes are reasonably obvious, but maybe he can do further damage with some preparations around the village.
2: Yeah, one idea we had was inspired by Moore's Umber. Moors has been making a noise outside Winterfell trying to lure Lord Bolton out. He didn't have much of a force at all, just a few boys with him, so he dug pits. The snow covered them, and in the case of Amy's fray, the pits were deadly.
3: Right, and Stannis hears this story firsthand, so he might dig a few pits of his own, or something similar. It's worth noting that we are repeatedly reminded there's a large supply of peat at the village, and we've wondered if this turf might be used to create more traps, as it can create a false surface.
2: Yeah, so we expect Stannis to lay out a few surprises like that. Stannis Baratheon, despite his men dying, eating each other, and now being trapped in snow, might be able to use almost like guerrilla warfare tactics to score a victory here. The Freys and Manderlys are riding out to meet him, and we think we know where the Mandley allegiance lies.
3: Yes, we do. And knowing George, perhaps everything won't go as smoothly as a lot of us are hoping. But remember, Stannis holds the ground as we hope we've shown so far in this episode. He's a smart, competent military commander. Perhaps this battle of ice will, as many wars do, come down to who understands the terrain better. And despite not being a northman himself, we know Stannis is smart enough to turn the cold, the snow and the frost to his full advantage.
2: Yeah, and we think the role of the northern clans will be really crucial here. We don't think it's for nothing that we're continually reminded how comfortable they are in these conditions, as well as showing the same determination as Stannis to win this war.
3: Yeah, and so that's our look at the Battle of Ice. Now we're going to conclude the episode with a look at Stannis' humor. He's a very funny man in his own way. But first, here's a message from today's sponsors. This episode of Radio Westeros brought to you by the Baratheon Hawk Foundation. Founded by the one true king of Westeros, Stannis Baratheon, the Baratheon Hawk Foundation is a charity dedicated to the preservation and care of the noble bird. On the advice of of Vashai, King Stannis has declared himself no longer able to fund this project, and so we are asking you to contribute and help save these magnificent creatures. Please donate to the Baratheon Hawk Foundation and help turn a thousand weak wings into proud wings once again. Okay, that was a message from today's sponsors. Now we're going to conclude the episode with a discussion about one aspect of Stannis' personality we just couldn't ignore.
2: Yeah, the word humourless is used to describe just one character in these books, Stannis. Now, before we ever even meet Stannis, we do get a picture of his personality in-game. Ned, who seems like a decent judge of character most of the time, thinks... Stannis was a different sort of man, a bare year younger than the king, yet utterly unlike him. Stern, humourless, unforgiving, grim in his sense of duty.
3: So, stern, unforgiving, grim in his sense of duty. All of this I think we can agree on. However, humourless... Stannis does have this humorlessness about him, caused by a serious nature. But on closer inspection, we think Stannis could be one of the funniest characters in this story.
2: Yes, Stannis, for all his grimness, is really quite hilarious and often too. He's an absolute champion of put-downs and insults. Sometimes the humour he causes might be for the benefit of the reader and perhaps unintentional on his part. But there's also evidence of Stannis having a dry, deadpan sense of humour going on, and that he knows exactly what he's saying.
3: Right. Stannis might just be a Song of Ice and Fire's most subtle comedian. Let's look at the wit of Stannis Baratheon now and share a few laughs.
2: Okay, So as early as Clash, we see Stannis' stern, by-the-book personality causing a few funny moments. There's a letter writing on Dragonstone. A letter is written outlining Stannis' claim to the throne. When he reads that Jaime is referred to as the Kingslayer, Stannis insists that it has to be amended to Sir Jaime the Kingslayer. He just has this kind of overriding need for justness or some kind of fairness as he sees it. And it's pretty funny sometimes
3: yeah yeah it is he's quite pedantic in a way and this causes the humor here stannis also goes on to amend robert being called his beloved brother because he didn't love him
2: and another example of stannis's pedantic nature causing humor can be seen with davos davos is making light of stannis chopping off four of his fingers claiming that he now has four less fingernails to clean Stannis responds by simply saying, fewer. That's all he says, fewer. And Davos wonders what Stannis means and asks asks his pardon. And Stannis points out that Davos has four fewer fingernails to clean, (laughs) not four less. Again, it's this kind of pedanticness seeming to be more bothered by Davos's grammar than having any regrets or other thoughts about cutting the fingers off Davos. And that causes the humour here.
3: (laughs) Yes. Some early hints that Stannis would go on to provide comedy gold to lighten the tension his seriousness invariably creates. These light moments can really add important depth to some of his scenes, we think.
2: Yeah, it just gives a new feel to some of his scenes, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) So let's look at some of the scenes where Stannis uses amusing put-downs. He's really a master, isn't he?
3: Yes, he is. Sometimes he uses simple name-calling. It's the childishness of it that creates the Mm humour. Like calling Wybin Manderley, Lord, too fat to sit a horse. (laughs) It's just classic.
2: Yeah, that is classic, too fat to sit a horse. (laughs) And it's just simple, but very effective, isn't it? Yeah. And when talking to John about the castles at the wall needing to be garrisoned, we have this: "No, sire, I I agree that the castles must be garrisoned." The boy commander agrees. How fortunate! <laughs> <laughs>
3: so, Stannis just gets in his pinch of sarcasm, using his wit to display his power and authority, and he can put people in their place very quickly. We don't have much doubt that Stannis, despite his manner, would be getting some satisfaction from his use of wit here. Rather than being unaware or humorless, we think it's just kept internal. There's a great example when he insults Renly.
2: Yeah, it's when Renly is talking about his new wife, Marjorie, and he says, You'll be pleased to know that she came to me a maid. And Stannis responds, In your bed, she's like to die that way.
3: (laughs) Oh, Stannis must have been quite pleased with himself here. And These kind of one-line insults are seen a lot. He also seems to have a particular problem with ass-kissers and bootlickers. When Davos notes that Lord Celtigar found the incest letter admirable, Stannis responds that, Had I shown him the contents of my privy, he would have called that admirable as well.
2: Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> and there's another. Stannis is with Janos Slint in Burry Marsh. Bowen asked Stannis Who better to lead the Night's Watch Than the man who once commanded the gold cloaks And bear in mind that Janos is stood right next to Stannis And his reply is Any of you, I would think Even the cook <laughs> <laughs>
3: He's just so blunt His put-downs <laughs> are great He doesn't care about reputations He sees things as they are And we just get these doses of humour from him it's part of why we love Stannis so much. He doesn't suffer fools gladly, and he doesn't stand for a sycophantic behaviour, and he can humiliate people like Janos Slint in great effect.
2: Yeah, and I think we all wish we could put down sycophants in the way that Stannis does so easily. And there's also his snipe about King's Landing, aimed at his sister-in-law Cersei. Stannis finds out that Gilly and Craster had incestuous ways, and he says, her own father got this child on her, We'll get rid of her then. We will not suffer such abominations here. This is not King's Landing. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right? So, we see Stannis being so insensitive, but it's just laced with this humour. And of course, there's instances of humour that we're not sure if Stannis is aware of or not. In the Theon sample chapter, ravens are squawking behind him and Stannis turns around and tells them, stop that noise! <laughs>
2: Yes, he's giving orders to the ravens, his authority. It's quite funny, isn't it? And of course, there's Renly's peach, which seems to really haunt this hard, serious, militaristic leader to some comedic effect. Of all the things to ruffle Stannis, this peach seems to cut the deepest. Eventually, he confesses to Davos... I swear, I'll go to my grave thinking of my brother's peach.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So, overall, comedy is a really relevant and important part of Stannis' personality. It creates fun for the reader in some dark situations. It allows Stannis to be stern and single-minded, but still amusing and likeable as a character. It somehow adds pathos to him. Just these subtle moments of hilarity that keep us all wanting more Stannis. A great layer that George has added to Stannis there. It's an interesting dynamic that's controlled very well.
2: Yeah, and as we said, we think a lot of Stannis' humour is purposeful, but perhaps we're meant to wonder. Like the reader, the characters around Stannis are often not entirely sure themselves. In Dance, when he and John are negotiating, Stannis asks, Do I need to make you swear an oath before a tree? And John thinks, No? Was that a jape? With Stannis, it was hard to tell. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and that's the end of our look at the leader, the commander, the comedian, Stannis Baratheon.
2: His knights will be horsed. Ours must fight afoot. His men will be well nourished. Ours go into battle with empty bellies. It makes no matter. Sir Stupid, Sir stupid Lord Too, Fat, too the bastard. bastard, let them come. it
3: Okay, so that was our look at Stannis Baratheon. Check out our website at RadioWesteros.com to read the accompanying essays, listen to the readings again, and lots more.
2: Yeah, and so we really enjoyed covering Stannis. He's very entertaining, we think, yet another reason to look forward to the Winds of Winter. Thanks very much to Jeff for joining us today. Remember to stop by his Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog if you're interested in the military and political aspects of this series.
3: Now, we can't say what we have lined up next, not because of lack of material, but because we're working on a few things. But we can promise it will be with you shortly.
2: And last but not least, we need to give thanks to George R.R. Martin for creating Stannis and also to Nine Inch Nails for allowing us to remix and use elements of their music.
3: So thanks very much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed a good dose of Stannis and that we did the just man justice. Come back for next time and bye for now.